We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Hear God's word. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, quote, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ." so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning or craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And this is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. We are in a series right now um, called We Believe, where we're walking through the Apostles' Creed, basically line by line. And today, we are going to tackle a topic that, honestly, um, is been quite controversial for about 1,500 years in the church. And so I'm like, you know what, that's pretty on brand for Christ City, so let's just go for it. Um, but before we jump into it, I want to recognize that today, it's not just Memorial Day, it's actually Ascension Sunday. And if you didn't grow up in, in high church or a church that recognized the basics of the church calendar that we deal with, um, you'll notice that this may be a little bit different for you, for us to think and recognize Ascension Sunday. And Ascension Sunday is basically the day that we recognize that Christ went into heaven. Now, we see in Acts chapter 1 that he is with his disciples, and he says to them, I'm going to leave you so you can get the power of the Holy Spirit. And they see right in front of their very eyes, Jesus basically float into heaven. And they keep watching him until he disappears. And they're overwhelmed thinking, oh my gosh. I mean, can you even imagine, like you're talking to somebody, and they're like, hey, I got to run. And you're like, okay, bro, like I'll see you. And all of a sudden they just start floating and you're going, well, I, I guess they're going to leave now. Like, I guess I won't see them again. Like that was, they're, they're with Jesus and all of a sudden he ascends. And what he's saying to them though is that you're not going to get all that you really need until I get out of here. So next Sunday is a Sunday that you're probably familiar with. It's Pentecost Sunday. And Pentecost Sunday is the Sunday where we talk about the Holy Spirit coming to be with us. But here's the thing. You don't get the, 
descension of the Holy Spirit upon us until we get the ascension of Jesus leaving us. So he ascends into heaven, and it says that he is, in Ephesians 2.6, he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Like that's where he went to. And that we in turn now are seated with him in the heavenlies. And it's a very profound thought because here's what it's saying. He ascends into heaven as a human being and as God. As a human being, he ascends into heaven with full empathy, overseeing the workings of all humanity, able to relate to them in their most common ways. It's amazing. We have a human being in heaven. Matter of fact, in verse 15, it says that he is the head. He is the head of the church. In the Greek, that that literally means like a human head. So we have someone who thinks and works and interacts, who has empathy like a human being, because he is a human being in heaven. We also have someone who has full majesty in heaven, that he oversees all the workings of the world and nothing is outside of his control. And that he in turn, it says, then we are seated with him in the heavenlies, meaning we are basically queens and kings. Whether you realize it right now, you're sitting beside someone who, if they are in Christ, they are in a sense seated with Christ in the heavenlies, and they are in turn now royalty, right? You never thought you'd get, get to meet royalty, but you're sitting there right beside it. This person is a really special person you're sitting beside because they now are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. It's an amazing reality for us to live into. And honestly, this is a a sermon I've always enjoyed preaching over the years. But as I started thinking about this ascension and looking at the Apostles' Creed, I realized there was a part in the creed that was kind of the vis-a-vis, the other side to this, that was a bit difficult. It was always difficult for me and something that honestly, for years when I would recite the Apostles' Creed, would just skip, right? Let's look at this together. You can look in your bulletins. Pick up, it says, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and and seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Now, historically, there's been a lot of contention around the Apostles' Creed with this this line. And the line is that he descended into hell. Um, In the earliest manuscripts... There's times you see it and times you don't. And it was like a ping pong match going back and forth for about 400 years until we get to 400 AD, I'm I'm sorry, 800 AD, where then we see it became officially a part of the Apostles' Creed. And it's something that theologians have wrestled with and tried to come to terms with. What exactly does this mean? But if Jesus died on Friday and was raised on Sunday, where was he on Saturday? what was happening on Saturday in his life. And what I want to show us this morning is, regardless of where we're going to land on this, on this idea of a literal hell, a figurative hell, at the end of the day, for Jesus to ascend, he had to descend. For Jesus to ascend to seat us in the heavenlies with him, he had to descend, which we'll see here in a second, to these lower regions of the earth. And I think if we're willing to look at this honestly, and consider what it's trying to say to us. Just be open-handed with it and realize, okay, there's a debate going on out there. What does this really mean? But if we can sit here this morning and just be open-handed with it, I believe we're going to find a lot of encouragement, a lot of strength, and a lot of hope. So let's consider just a couple of things here. Let's consider what does this mean for you as an individual, 
And then we're going to look at what does it mean for us then as corporately as a body. So first let's start with what does it mean for you as an individual. G.K. Chesterton was a early 20th century journalist and writer, um, a big influence on people like C.S. Lewis. And when asked about hell, uh, his thoughts about it, here's what he said. He goes, while I cannot speak from personal experience, it seems a place to be avoided, which I think that's the extent of our commentary many times on hell for ourselves today, that it seems to be a place avoided even though we really just can't speak from personal experience. Now look at verse 8 and 9 in your Bibles. It says, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions? Now, other translations will just say, or the lower parts of the earth. So let's just ask this question up front. Did Jesus go to hell? Maybe and yes. All right? So maybe and yes. So let me just kind of tackle this here. Let me tackle the, the maybe, the maybe first. Scripture is vague about this, but it still talks about it. So Scripture is vague about what really happened between Friday and Sunday, but something still we know happened. Not really sure what, but something still happened. A couple of verses I'll show you. These are just two of several in, in the New Testament. In Matthew 12, 40, Jesus is talking to religious leaders, and he says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now he says this to them, and he's pulling this imagery of someone who actually did live, Jonah. And there's lots of talk and debate, even did a well actually appear in the Mediterranean waters, right, next to Israel and swallow Jonah? Who knows? But the reality, the point, I mean, the point is this, that wherever Jonah was, it was a place for him to have deep contemplation because when he got out of there, he realized that he needed to obey God, all right, and to go then to Tarshish. So we see that Jesus is pulling from somebody who really lived, and he goes, just as Jonah was in the belly for three days and nights, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth. We're like, what does that mean? It sounds like that he's, he's pulling from some Dante or something like that, which is not the case because Dante didn't come until 1,200 years after him. But the point is Jesus is wrestling with something here. Look here at 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 20. We'll have it on the screen. For, God, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. The spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. What is that about? Like, what is he trying to say there? Now, there's three different ways that theologians have tried to, like, tackle this. The first way is they've said he went to set free people who had died before him in covenant. So, there's been explanations. You've probably heard of people say he went 
to set free those who in the Old Testament died, and they were like in this place called like Abraham's bosom or something like that. He went to go get them out of there. He's like, hey, y'all, like I won. Let's go. All right. And they're like, yes, finally. I've been waiting 2,000 years. Let's go with you, you know. The, the, the second option that's been thrown out there over the years has been he went to minister to the unsaved and to give them a second chance. Like he went down there and he goes, hey, I know y'all didn't like this whole thing about Yahweh, but here I am, all right? So do you want to go with me or not? The third thought is this, that he just went down there to tease people for a few days and let them know that y'all made a really bad decision and this is like the end of the line for you and deuces, I'm out of here, all right? Now I'm trying to make light of it because honestly, we don't really know. We don't really know exactly like what happened, what was said, what the situation really was. But instead of trying to explain exactly what Jesus did, let me paint a picture of how an ancient Near Eastern person saw hell. And we're going to put this on the screen for you. Just look at this. And there's going to be several verses attached to it. You know, for some of you taking notes, feel free to put that down. But if you can just want to, you can email me and I'll, I'll send you this quote if you're interested in it. This is from a professor named Joe Rigney. He says, in the Old Testament, Sheol is the place of the souls of the dead. In the New Testament, the Hebrew word Sheol is translated as Hades. And the description of Sheol in the Old and New Testaments bears some resemblance to the Hades of Greek mythology. It is under the earth, and it is like a city with gates and bars. It is a land of darkness, a place where shades, the shadowy souls of men, dwell. It is the land of forgetfulness where no work is done and no wisdom exists. Most significantly, Sheol is a place where no one praises God. For an ancient Eastern person, regardless if this place was going to be literal or not, they had a very vivid picture, a very vivid picture of this place that would separate you from God, that you couldn't get access to Him when you died. So did Jesus go down to hell? Maybe. But here's what I want us to think about. If hell is painted this way for an ancient Near Eastern person, can you relate to that even in your own life today? Like, can you relate to almost like a hell on earth? You ever heard that line, it's like hell on earth? Like, can you relate to places in your life, crevices, corners, dark corners in your life, where it's like the shadowy souls of men exist? Can you relate to like this hell here on earth in your own life where there is no praise that reaches God? Like those places in your life where no one knows about or gets access to. The places you don't talk about, you only confess when things get really extreme and really bad. And even then, you're not gonna confess it to anybody that really like you want to like know you know you. Like you're, you want to be careful with that. Like you don't want to come talk to about a pastor or someone like that. Like can you relate to those kinds of places in your life? Because see, Hades for Greek mythology was where this ruler Hades, he was the brother of Zeus, and Zeus was to rule the sky and Hades the bottom of the earth, these far regions of the earth. And that you didn't want to get near or close to Hades. He was unmerciful to you. He would rule over you. He would never let you leave. 
And I think if we're honest, regardless if there's like this literal place that Jesus went to, there's our own hell we deal with in our lives on a day-in and day-out basis. These places where, as he said, there are gates and bars that no matter how many times we try to get out of it, we can't. No matter how many times we try to confess it, it hasn't been enough. No matter how much work we put into trying to see something change, it just doesn't change. That there are these places with bars in our lives, these places that we feel trapped by, imprisoned in, even as we live today. And we keep saying that we follow Jesus, but we find ourselves entrapped and ensnared to these ways of life. And here's what I would like to propose to us, that maybe or maybe not Jesus went to hell, but here's what we do know, that by saying he descended to the far regions of the earth, we at least know this, that he has gone to the worst places of your life and my life. That what the descension of Jesus means on that Saturday is that there is no place in your life that he can't get to. That at the end of the day, you can't outrun him. You can't outrun grace. You can't hide from it. You can't get away from his presence. Matter of fact, in Psalm 139, it says this, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the far regions of this earth, you are there. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. You see, the descension of Jesus to the far regions of the earth to hell, to your own hell, tells us this, that he meets us in our worst and most difficult places, that he meets us in our hell, that he meets us in the places that we don't even want to go to. And that actually is good news. I know you don't want to be exposed in different areas because historically when you've been exposed, it's been a bad word. It's someone who's been unsafe and unloving who's come into your life and tried to point out all your flaws. That's one of the things even in my marriage with Suzanne, we've had to talk about this a lot. It's very easy when you get married, right? Okay, so spouses, you know this. When you get married, at first you're like, gosh, you're amazing. You're, everything about you is amazing. I love how you cook, and I love how you clean, and, and I love how you work in the garden, and I love how you like to watch movies. You're so cute the way you eat popcorn. And then one day, it hits you down the road. That is so annoying the way they eat popcorn. I wish they would stop eating popcorn that way, all right? Am I the only one? I don't think so. I think some of you do this as well, right? Like, like the way they kind of sip their drink or the way they kind of do this or that, like, or, you know, whatever it may be, like you start seeing all their flaws. And then one day it hits you. It's like, you know what I think I need to do? I need to talk to them about their flaws. I need to call them out about this, and we need to work on the way you sip coffee because it is really loud and annoying to me, all right? And then you start going down that path, and it's never ending because all you're doing is trying to expose them, not love them. So we have this fear of being exposed because many times it hasn't been loving. But the reality is this. Jesus goes to the place that you don't want to expose that you've locked yourself into on your own accord. Like C.S. Lewis, he had some really interesting ways to look at hell. And in the problem of pain, here's what he had to say. I willingly believe that the damned are, in a sense, successful rebels to the end, 
that the doors of hell are locked on the inside. They enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded and are therefore self-enslaved. Your living hell is locked from the inside. It's not locked from the outside. You're where you are today, not because God hasn't come to meet you. It's because you and I keep choosing to stay there. That we're not willing to go to any links, any links to see something change in our life. But here's the thing. It doesn't start with you unlocking the door. It starts with Jesus busting through the door of your own hell and saying, I'm here. Do you want to follow me out? Like, I'm here in the worst place in your life. I'm here in the place you keep trying to hide out in. Do you want to follow me out? That's amazing. That's amazing that he's willing to come to us where we don't even want to go ourselves. And to bust open the door, the door that's locked from the inside, and say to us, if you want, you can follow me out. You don't have to keep living in this self-deprecation of your own life. You don't have to keep living in these nuanced ways of calling out others only because you're so dissatisfied with yourself. You're always judgmental because honestly, you just judge yourself. You look down on others because honestly, you, you look down on yourself. And he's coming in saying, listen, I'm willing to be with you in the places you don't even want to be in. Dean Powery said it this way, Christ's presence goes with Christians even to the darkest and most tortured parts of their lives. Even hell is not beyond the bounds of Christ's presence, graces, and redemption. See, regardless if Jesus went to a literal hell, he went to the far regions of your hell, and then he raised you up to come to the far corners of his heaven. He went to the far regions of your hell to raise you up to the far corners of his heaven. And here's what that means. It means that we are seated with him in these heavenly places and that we now can have a different life and a different reality, no longer having to live from, locked from the inside. Karl Barth, he was, um, many consider him the greatest theologian of the 20th century. He said that the death of Christ, rather than providing the knowledge of God, provides us with the assurance that he knows us. See, regardless, if you ever say yes to Jesus in every area of your life, I want you to know something. He already knows you. Like he knows the worst of you. And somehow, some way, in this weird way, he has redeemed and embraces the worst of you so that you can now embrace the best of him. And this is what it means for us that he descended to these lower regions that you actually have a God who reached down to the guts of the earth and pulled you up to the heavenlies and said, this is where you belong. You don't belong down here, you belong up here. And yet many times we, leave with, we live with these self-inflicted, locked from the inside doors of hell. And all it simply takes, friends, is one word, surrender. To surrender to him, to simply say, I give up trying to do life on my own terms, in my own way. So, that's what it means for you, but what does that mean for us? Because if Jesus was willing to go to any length to be with us where we are, to bring us up to where he is, the question is, do we do the same? Now, I don't want to be incredibly offensive, but I'm going to be somewhat offensive. So, here we go. Paul 
at first glance, for years when I read this passage, I would read it, okay, and the passage is about unity. That's what it's about. He says, I desire for you to be unified, that you have one God, one Lord, one baptism, one Holy Spirit. And then we get to this part, this little, at verse 8, where he starts talking about like Jesus like going to hell and then like going to heaven. And you're going, Paul, are you just old? Like, are you just forgetting things? Like, do you not realize what you're doing? Are you just kind of going on a tangent here? And because the writers and those who eventually kept taking these manuscripts and and passing them on, because they respected Paul so much, they didn't want to, like, take it out. And then it hit me. I was like, this is brilliant what Paul is doing. Because he's actually trying to show us that to have real unity, you have to be willing to do what Jesus did. To actually be with another person, you got to go be with the people you don't want to be with. You can't ask them to come to where you are. Jesus couldn't tell us, come to heaven. He had to first descend to earth and descend to the lower regions of the earth and then say, now come with me. Now come be with me. And many times in church, and I'm just going to say in our church, we have these dividing lines that can be so subtle. You know, in this room, we have reds and we have blues. In this room, we have pro-life and we have pro-choice. In this room, we have affirming and we have traditional non-affirming. And in this room, we have Black Lives Matter and we have All Lives Matter. Both are in this room right now. You're sitting beside someone, more than likely, that sees life very different from you. And I'm going to tell you something. We're actually a pretty unique church in that way. Because when I, when I talk to the pastors and we go to, when I, I've, I've worked at other churches, this isn't the case. Most churches are echo chambers in our area. There's different areas. I mean, Christ City is unique in that we're here in Midtown, in the most progressive liberal parts of our city, and yet we even have people who are going to be more conservative, who vote red, and those who would say, I'll never vote red. Those who would say, how could you ever think about taking a baby's life? And others that would say, how could you ever think about taking the rights of a woman away from her? And we come together on Sunday mornings and worship Jesus. And a lot of times we don't like just talk about the elephant in the room. And that is like some of us in here don't like each other. And yet we want to say that we have unity. Like we want to patiently endure one another when all we do is sit in our seats and judge the other person for how they voted last November. And we, it, ha- it comes out one of two ways. There's one way that comes out with Facebook. We sit there at our desk with our laptop in a coffee shop or in the confines, comfortable confines of our home, and we launch mind grenades at someone else. That may only be two miles away, but it feels like they're a thousand miles away. And then we show up to church on Sunday after making these remarks to one another and like, hey, peace of Christ with you, brother. You too. And so we sit there and we launch these emotional, these mind grenades thinking, uh, it's okay. Those are my rights to blast whoever I want to on Facebook. Others of us, though, you're worse. You sit at home and you don't get on Facebook. You instead just never say a word and silently judge people in your hearts until you rot inside. Never talk about what's happening on the inside of you. Both are in this room. And the question is this. 
what's it going to take for us to actually be willing to live in an understanding way with one another? You'd see in verse 2, look at this. Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit, the bond of peace. In our attempt to be seen and understood, whatever side you land on, many times we become only threatening and judgmental. In our attempt to be seen and understood, many times we simply become simply threatening and judgmental. We tell other people around us, come be with me before I'm, I'm going to come be with you. Come see my side, come see my understanding until I understand you. But that's actually not the way the gospel works. The gospel isn't understand me before I understand you. The gospel is let me seek to step into your world and understand you so that we now can be together. I want to turn your attention to the bulletins. There's a prayer there. You mind right there? In the back of your bulletins, there's a, a prayer that I came across years ago. Someone by the name of St. Francis of Assisi. You all heard of him. He's a saint who uh, had a deep love and affection for creation, uh, for all God's creatures, for animals. Um, the, the urban legend was he could even talk to animals himself, uh, which we all know that doesn't really happen in life. But all that to say, there's a prayer here that I always found incredibly meaningful. I want to share with you. Here's what he had to say. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand to be loved as to love. For it, is, for it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Do you see that in the center? Grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand. That's a big ask, I know. That's a big ask for you to seek to understand another person. Like, for those of you who are conservative in this room, when you see another person and they are trying to stand up for, in their mind, the rights of minorities, but you see that as a vis-a-vis -vis at times to saying, but we stand up for the rights of all people. And you want to let them know, like, listen, all lives matter at the end of the day. That's what we need to be talking about. But here's the question. Instead of you getting a point across, can you not just go to that person and go, I want to see it through your eyes. Like, we don't even have to agree at the end of the day. But I do want to come to be where you are. Because we can't be together unless I can come to where you are. For those of you in this room that look at someone who voted red, and you're going, Man, how could you do that? What are you thinking? And you made decisions internally to separate yourself last November after the elections. You've become callous and judgmental in your heart. You have found ways to separate yourself from another person in this room.
Notice here what Paul is saying around verse, let me see it here, verse 14. He says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Many times this becomes us if we're not careful. See, the thing at the center of this passage that is to bring unity is not your ideology or your philosophy or the way you see social justice in the world. That's not the thing at the end of the day that's center. What's center is the dissension and ascension of Jesus. That's why Paul put it there. Let me say it plainly. You do not relate over politics or over philosophies. You relate and center yourselves around Jesus. That's the only thing you center yourselves around. Did Jesus descend to the lower regions, even the lower regions of, of your life? Yes. Did he ascend to heaven and to bring you there with him? Yes. Do we find unity around the Apostles' Creed? Yes, that's why we're going through this for 10 weeks. Because until we can find unity around Jesus, we actually can't call ourselves Christians, much less the church. And at the end of the day, the world is looking not for profound answers to all their problems, but for people who can go and be with them in their problems. And if you can't be with each other in this room, you can't be with someone here outside of this room. It's just that plain and simple. So the question is, are you going to get out of your foxholes and your bunkers? Are you going to walk over to the other side and go, hey, can I snuggle up beside you and can we talk? Like, can we just have a conversation? Because he's saying in all humility, gentleness, and in love, he's saying like with empathy, be with one another. That's what it's going to take. That's what love is. This humility and this gentleness that we have towards one another. And if you're not having that for the person who is opposite of you, you're only living in an echo chamber, demanding others to come to where you are before you have a relationship with them. And that is not biblical. That is not Christ-centered. Christ-centered is you stepping across your line saying, let's talk about this. And regardless if we disagree with one another in the day, because I'm going to speak the truth in love, but here, it's not truth and then love, it's truth out of love. So you got to have empathy before you could talk about where you stand. And you can't have empathy until you step into where, where someone else stands. I'm not making it up, it's just here in the Bible. And that's why we have Jesus going to where we are to bring us to where He is. That is the gospel. So the question is this, are you willing to do that? And not just say the peace of Christ with you and also with you, brother, but to re- you know who's different from you in this room. You know who doesn't see it the same way you do, and that's okay. But if you continue, and if I continue, if we continue to try to live in our own little echo chambers where people just pair it back to us, what we believe and why we believe it, and we get all riled up and say, yeah, that's why I think the way I think, then you find yourself centering around the wrong things. It is the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus that we center our lives around. And that's why after this series, we're not going to let up. We're just going to talk about Jesus for 10 months and go through every gospel. Because we want to talk about Jesus. We want Jesus to be the center. That's the only answer to any dilemma or any problems or any frustrations we have in this room. You're not going to be able to talk to the person enough to convince them to see life the way you are. 
and where you are and why you think the way you do. It's not going to happen. But you can get to know a person and let them be with you in turn. In my early 20s, I spent time working in Western Europe, one of the most uh, unique and even profound opportunities I had was to go to eastern Germany to a small town called Herrenhut. Um, and Herrenhut was this place where these group of people called the Moravians settled into. And the Moravians were one of the first great Protestant uh, mission movements in the world. Uh, they were known for saying, we're going to go to the far reaches of the world, and they would say to somebody, okay, here we go, Tom and Joyce, we're going to send you out to the mission field, and here's what we're going to do. One change of clothes, and you're going to take your own coffins. We'll see you when you get back. And the only way they came back were in their coffins. <laughs> we don't want you to do that, okay? Like, they were serious about going to the far regions, the far regions of the world at whatever cost. And from that, they started what was a hundred year, 24 hours a day prayer vigil. For a hundred years, 24 hours a day, a hundred years, 24 hours a day, they always had someone praying in their community. Incredibly profound, the things they did with this small group of just a few hundred people living in this town in eastern Germany. And Count Zinzendorf, he was a, a wealthy man who came to know Jesus, was so convicted that he decided to give all his wealth to the church and to create this kind of community. I mean, they were the first missional community, right, that we find in the last 2,000 years since, since the New Testament. But there was one line in particular that really motivated him, and it came from someone that we've never heard of. His, his name was Rupertus Maldinus, who was a, an early to mid-17th century theologian, a Lutheran, basically a disciple of Martin Luther. And um, Rupertus had this line that had really affected Zinzendorf's life, and it was this, in the essentials, let there be unity, in the non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. In the essentials, let there be unity, in the non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. And this line actually came from the heart in the middle of what was called the 30-year war in Europe. From 1618 to 1648, for 30 years, there was a Catholic and Protestant war that claimed over 8 million lives. Think about that. 8 million people over 30 years died between churches fighting. An incredibly sad time in the history of church. And so, Maldinus, with this line, says, listen, we're fighting over the things that are not essentials. Yes, 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 I understand. They're essentials. They're in the Bible. Everything in the Bible is essential. Yes, I get it. But the center of the Bible, the kernel of the Bible, the thing that is most essential in the Bible is the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. And we have to first find unity there. We find unity around the fact of not our 0.001% difference in our humanity, but our 99.99% sameness in our humanity. That studies show in our biology, we're only separated by 0.01%. That we have all this connectivity that we deny. And the same is true for us here in Scripture. We have all this connectivity, but it starts with Jesus. 
And with Jesus, his modeling of him going to where you are to bring you to where he is with love and empathy and compassion, and we practice the same with one another. And so this is the line I want you to write down, to tattoo, to be thinking about with Christ City. In the essentials, let there be unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, love. In all things, empathy for one another. To seek to understand instead of being understood. To seek to be with instead of demanding for another person. Let's pray. Father, I know this is a hard word for us to receive in so many ways. Because for many of us in this room, we've landed where we've landed in our beliefs because of the experiences we've been through in life. We've been hurt. We've been diminished. That there are those who've come before us that have tied you to philosophies and politics in a way that said, this is the thing that you have to see and agree on, and if not, we can never be together, which actually isn't you, Jesus. If anything, when you come into the picture, you are pointing out to those who are so religious and astute and elite with their thick lines drawn, he's saying, you're saying to them, hey, you don't get it. And to those who are so broken and needy, the outcasts and on the margin, to those, yes, there'll be change in their lives. Yes, there'll be repentance of sin, but you simply just go to be where they are, not demanding for them to come where you are. And Lord, I pray this morning, even as we go now to the table, that we would find here is the ultimate expression of you coming to us and our inability to go to you. And in that, you bring us to where you are in your ascension. Thank you for coming to our hell, Jesus where the door is locked from the inside, where we find ourselves tormenting ourselves, holding on to our own ideologies and thoughts and philosophies, our own particular nuances of theology. We pray that you would come even now. Jesus, come even now. Come be the unifying glue, the bond of all humility and patience and gentleness. May we experience that with you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.